Hey guys, welcome to Another World Audiobooks. I feel like it's been forever since I've actually gotten to like talk to you guys. I've done a bunch of pre-recording in the last episode, actually, and several episodes before that. We're all done actually before Christmas, so it's been like a month since I've actually gotten to record where I know this is going out to you guys right away. Hope you guys enjoyed the little special episodes there with the Christmas Carol, and then now we're getting back into Princess of Mars. Um, yeah, I'm so excited for this new year. I think there's a lot of good stuff in store for Another World Audiobooks, and I want you guys to be part of it. So if you haven't followed us on social media, you can do that on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and all the links for that are down below in the show notes. And uh, also, just I, I just ask you to just spread the word. That is the most important thing is just if you like this podcast then chances are you know somebody else who would like it and chances are they know somebody else who would like it and that's how we grow and i really do i want to grow this podcast make it bigger and better so that i can bring you more episodes more content more often and for uh, longer episodes as well so i'm just doing what i can right now because it's a labor of love but the more you help the podcast grow the more content i can bring you and that's the goal so without further ado i give you the next couple chapters of a princess of mars Chapter 18 Chained in Warhoon It must have been several hours before I regained consciousness, and I well remember the feeling of surprise which swept over me as I realized I was not dead. I was lying among a pile of sleeping silks and furs in the corner of a small room in which were several green warriors, and bending over me was an ancient and ugly female. As I opened my eyes, she turned to one of the warriors, saying, he will live, O oh Jed. Tis well, replied the one so addressed, rising and approaching my couch. He should render rare sport for the great games. And now, as my eyes fell upon him, I saw that he was no thark, for his ornaments and metal were not of that horde. He was a huge fellow, terribly scarred about the face and chest, and with one broken tusk and a missing ear. Strapped on either breast were human skulls, and depending from these, a number of dried human hands. His reference to the great games of which I had heard so much while among the Thoks convinced me that I had but jumped from purgatory into Gehenna. After a few more words with the female, during which she assured him that I was now fully fit to travel, the Jed ordered that we mount and ride after the main column. I was strapped securely to as wild and unmanageable a thought as I had ever seen, and, with a mounted warrior on either side to prevent the beast from bolting, we rode forth at a furious pace in pursuit of the column. My wounds gave me but little pain, so wonderfully and rapidly had the applications and injections of the female exercised their therapeutic powers, and so deftly had she bound and plastered the injuries. Just before dark, we reached the main body of troops, shortly after they had made camp for the night. I was immediately taken before the leader, who proved to be the Jeddak of the hordes of Wahoon. Like the Jed who had brought me, he was frightfully scarred, and also decorated with a breastplate of human skulls and dried dead hands, which seemed to mark all the greater warriors among the Wahoons, as well as to indicate their awful ferocity, which greatly transcends even that of the Tharks. The Jeddak, Bar Komas, who was comparatively young, was the object of the fierce and jealous hatred of his old lieutenant, Doc Kova, the Jed who had captured me and I could not but note the almost studied efforts which the latter made to affront his superior. He entirely omitted the usual formal salutation as we entered the presence of the Jeddak, and as he pushed me roughly before the ruler, he exclaimed in a loud and menacing voice, I have brought a strange creature wearing the metal of a thark, 
whom it is my pleasure to have battle with a wild thoat at the great games. He will die as Bar Komas, your Jeddak, sees fit, if at all, replied the young ruler with emphasis and dignity. If at all, roared Dak Kova. By the dead hands of my thoat, but he shall die, Bar Komas. No maudlin weakness on your part shall save him. Oh, would that Warhoom were ruled by a real Jeddak, rather than by a water-hearted weakling, from whom even old Dark Kova could tear the metal with his bare hands. Bar Komas eyed the defiant and insubordinate chieftain for an instant, his expression one of haughty, fearless contempt and hate, and then, without drawing a weapon, and without uttering a word, he hurled himself at the throat of his defamer. I never before had seen two green Martian warriors battle with nature's weapons, and the exhibition of animal ferocity which ensued was as fearful a thing as the most disordered imagination could picture. They tore at each other's eyes and ears with their hands, and with their gleaming tusks, repeatedly slashed and gored until both were fairly cut to ribbons from head to foot. Bar Comas had much the better of the battle, as he was stronger, quicker, and more intelligent. It soon seemed that the encounter was done, saving only the final death thrust, when Bar Comas slipped and breaking away from a clinch. It was the one little opening that Dark Kova needed, and hurling himself at the body of his adversary, he buried his single mighty tusk in Barcomus's groin, and with a last powerful effort, ripped the young Jeddak wide open the length of his body, the great tusk finally wedging in the bones of Barcomus's jaw. Victor and Vanquished rolled limp and lifeless upon the moss, a huge mass of torn and bloody flesh. Barcomus was stone dead and only the most Herculean efforts on the part of Dark Kova's females saved him from the fate he deserved. Three days later, he walked without assistance to the body of Bar Comus, which, by custom, had not been moved from where it fell, and placing his foot upon the neck of his erstwhile ruler, he assumed the title of Jeddak of Warhoon. The dead Jeddak's hands and head were removed to be added to the ornaments of his conqueror, and then his women cremated what remained amid wild and terrible laughter. The injuries to Dark Kova had delayed the march so greatly that it was decided to give up the expedition, which was a raid upon a small thought community in retaliation for the destruction of the incubator until after the Great Games, and the entire body of warriors, ten thousand in number, turned back toward Wahoon. My introduction to these cruel and bloodthirsty people was but an index to the scenes I witnessed almost daily while with them. They are a smaller horde than the Tharks, but much more ferocious. Not a day passed but that some members of the various Warhoon communities met in deadly combat. I have seen as high as eight mortal duels within a single day. We reached the city of Warhoon after some three days' march, and I was immediately cast into a dungeon and heavily chained to the floor and walls. Food was brought to me at intervals, but owing to the utter darkness of the place, I do not know whether I lay there days or weeks or months. It was the most horrible experience of all my life and that my mind did not give way to the terrors of that inky blackness has been a wonder to me ever since. The place was filled with creeping, crawling things. Cold, sinuous bodies passed over me when I lay down, and in the darkness I occasionally caught glimpses of gleaming, fiery eyes, fixed in horrible intentness upon me. No sound reached me from the world above, and no word would my jailer vouchsafe when my food was brought to me, although I at first bombarded him with questions. Finally, all the hatred and maniacal loathing for these awful creatures who had placed me in this horrible place was centered by my tottering reason upon this single emissary, 
who represented to me the entire horde of Wahoons. I had noticed that he always advanced with his dim torch to where he could place the food within my reach, and as he stooped to place it upon the floor, his head was about on a level with my breast. So, with the cunning of a madman, I backed into the far corner of my cell when next I heard him approaching, and gathering a little slack of the great chain which held me in my hand, I waited his coming, crouching like some beast of prey. As he stooped to place my food upon the ground, I swung the chain above my head and crashed the links with all my strength upon his skull. Without a sound, he slipped to the floor, stone dead. Laughing and chattering like the idiot I was fast becoming, I fell upon his prostrate form, my fingers feeling for his dead throat. Presently, they came in contact with a small chain, at the end of which dangled a number of keys. The touch of my fingers on these keys brought back my reason with the suddenness of thought. No longer was I a gibbering idiot, but a sane, reasoning man with the means of escape within my very hands. As I was groping to remove the chain from about my victim's neck, I glanced up into the darkness to see six pairs of gleaming eyes fixed, unwinking upon me. Slowly, they approached, and slowly I shrank back from the awful horror of them. Back into my corner I crouched, holding my hands, palms out, before me, and stealthily on came the awful eyes, until they reached the dead body at my feet. Then, slowly, they retreated, but this time with a strange grating sound, and finally they disappeared in some black and distant recess of my dungeon. Chapter 19 Battling in the Arena Slowly, I regained my composure, and finally essayed again to attempt to remove the keys from the dead body of my former jailer. But, as I reached out into the darkness to locate it, I found to my horror that it was gone. Then, the truth flashed on me. The owners of those gleaming eyes had dragged my prize away from me to be devoured in their neighboring lair. As they had been waiting for days, for weeks, for months, through all this awful eternity of my imprisonment, to drag my dead carcass to their feast. For two days, no food was brought me, but then a new messenger appeared, and my incarceration went on as before, but not again did I allow my reason to be submerged by the horror of my position. Shortly after this episode, another prisoner was brought in and chained near me. By the dim torchlight, I saw that he was a red Martian, and I could scarcely await the departure of his guard to address him. As their retreating footsteps died away in the distance, I called out softly the Martian word of greeting, Kaor. Who are you who speaks out of the darkness? He answered. John Carter, a friend of the Red Men of Helium. I am of Helium, he said. But I do not recall your name. And then I told him my story as I have written it here, omitting only any reference to my love for Dejah Thoris. He was much excited by the news of Helium's princess, and seemed quite positive that she and Sola could easily have reached a point of safety from where they left me. He said that he knew the place well, because the defile through which the Warhoon warriors had passed when they discovered us was the only one ever used by them when marching to the south. Dejah Thoris and Sola enter the hills not five miles from a great waterway, and are now probably quite safe, he assured me. My fellow prisoner was Kantos Khan, a Padua, or lieutenant, in the navy of Helium. He had been a member of the ill-fated expedition which had fallen into the hands of the Tharks at the time of Dejah Thoris's capture, and he briefly related the events which followed the defeat of the battleships. Badly injured and only partially manned, they had limped slowly toward Helium, but while passing near the city of Zodanga, 
the capital of Helium's hereditary enemies among the Red Men of Barsoom, they had been attacked by a great body of war vessels, and all but the craft to which Kantos Khan belongs were either destroyed or captured. His vessel was chased for days by three of the Zodangan warships, but finally escaped during the darkness of a moonless night. Thirty days after the capture of Dejah Thoris, or about the time of our coming to Thark, his vessel had reached Helium with about ten survivors of the original crew of seven hundred officers and men. Immediately, seven great fleets, each of one hundred mighty warships, had been dispatched to search for Dejah Thoris, and from these vessels two thousand smaller craft had been kept out continuously in futile search for the missing princess. Two green Martian communities had been wiped off the face of Barsoom by the avenging fleets, but no trace of Dejah Thoris had been found. They had been searching among the northern hordes, and only within the past few days had they extended their quest to the south. Kantos Khan had been detailed to one of the small one-man flyers, and had had the misfortune to be discovered by the war hoons while exploring their city. The bravery and daring of the man won my greatest respect and admiration. Alone he had landed at the city's boundary, and on foot had penetrated to the buildings surrounding the plaza. For two days and nights he had explored their quarters and their dungeons in search of his beloved princess, only to fall into the hands of a party of warhoons as he was about to leave, after assuring himself that Dejah Thoris was not a captive there. During the period of our incarceration, Kantos Khan and I became well acquainted and formed a warm personal friendship. A few days only elapsed, however, before we were dragged forth from our dungeon from the Great Games. We were conducted early one morning to an enormous amphitheater, which instead of having been built upon the surface of the ground, was excavated below the surface. It had partially filled with debris, so that how large it had originally been was difficult to say. In its present condition, it held the entire 20,000 warhoons of the assembled hordes. The arena was immense, but extremely uneven and unkempt. Around it, the warhoons had piled building stones from some of the ruined edifices of the ancient city to prevent the animals and captives from escaping into the audience, and at each end had been constructed cages to hold them until their turns came to meet some horrible death upon the arena. Kantos Khan and I were confined together in one of the cages, and the others were wild Kalots, Thotes, mad Zitadars, green warriors, and women of other hordes, and many strange and ferocious wild beasts of Barsoom which I had never before seen. The din of their roaring, growling, and squealing was deafening, and the formidable appearance of any one of them was enough to make the stoutest heart feel grave forebodings. Kantos Khan explained to me that at the end of the day one of these prisoners would gain freedom, and the others would lie dead about the arena. The winners in the various contests of the day will be pitted against each other until only two remained alive, the victor in the last encounter being set free, whether animal or man. The following morning the cages will be filled with a new consignment of victims, and so on throughout the ten days of the games. Shortly after we had been caged, the amphitheater began to fill, and within an hour every available part of the seating space was occupied. Dak Kova, with his jeds and chieftains, sat at the center of one side of the arena, upon a large raised platform. At a signal from Dakova, the doors of two cages were thrown open, and a dozen green Martian females were driven to the center of the arena. Each was given a dagger, and then, at the far end, a pack of twelve callets, or wild dogs, were loosed upon them. As the brutes, growling and foaming, rushed upon the almost defenseless women, I turned my head that I might not see the horrid sight. 
The yells and laughter of the green horde bore witness to the excellent quality of the sport, and when I turned back to the arena, as Kantos Khan told me it was over, I saw three victorious carts snarling and growling over the bodies of their prey. The women had given a good account of themselves. Next, a mad Zitadar was loosed among the remaining dogs, and so it went throughout the long, hot, horrible day. During the day, I was pitted first against men and then beasts, but as I was armed with a longsword and always outclassed my adversary in agility and generally in strength as well, it proved but child's play to me. Time and time again, I won the applause of the bloodthirsty multitude, and toward the end, there were cries that I be taken from the arena and be made a member of the hordes of Warhoon. Finally, there were but three of us left, a great green warrior of some far northern horde, Kantos Khan, and myself. The other two were to battle, and then I to fight the conqueror for the liberty which was accorded the final winner. Kantos Khan had fought several times during the day, and like myself had always proven victorious, but occasionally by the smallest of margins, especially when pitted against the green warriors. I had little hope that he could best his giant adversary, who had mowed down all before him during the day. The fellow tottered nearly sixteen feet in height, while Kantos Khan was some inches under six feet. As they advanced to meet one another, I saw for the first time a trick of Martian swordsmanship which centered Kantos Khan's every hope of victory and life on one cast of the dice, for as he came to within about twenty feet of the huge fellow, he threw his sword arm far behind him over his shoulder, and with a mighty sweep hurled his weapon's point foremost at the green warrior. It flew true as an arrow, and piercing the poor devil's heart, laid him dead upon the arena. Kantos Khan and I were now pitted against each other, but as we approached to the encounter, I whispered to him to prolong the battle until nearly dark, in the hope that we might find some means of escape. The horde evidently guessed that we had no hearts to fight each other, and so they howled in rage as neither of us placed a fatal thrust. Just as I saw the sudden coming of dark, I whispered to Kantos Khan to thrust his sword between my left arm and my body. As he did so, I staggered back, clasping the sword tightly with my arm, and thus fell to the ground with his weapon apparently protruding from my chest. Kantos Khan perceived my coup and stepped quickly to my side. He placed his foot upon my neck, and withdrawing his sword from my body, gave me the final death blow through the neck, which is supposed to sever the jugular vein. But in this instance, the cold blade slipped harmlessly into the sand of the arena. In the darkness which had now fallen, none could tell but that he had really finished me. I whispered to him to go and claim his freedom, and then look for me in the hills east of the city, and so he left me. When the amphitheater had cleared, I crept stealthily to the top, and as the great excavation lay far from the plaza, and in an untenanted portion of the great dead city, I had little trouble in reaching the hills beyond. All right. Thanks, guys, for listening today. I really appreciate you tuning in and being such a loyal listener to the podcast. Um, yeah, I'm, like I said, very excited about this coming year. And I want you guys to be a part of it and engaged with it. So go ahead and follow us on social media. Get engaged with uh, when I post stuff. I, I, I'm always asking um, uh, listeners if they can just give me some input. Like, what, what do you like? What do you not, not like? I'd love to hear from you. It would literally make my day, make my week, probably make my month. <laughs> so if, if you guys want to reach out, all the ways to do that are down below. And remember, just share the podcast with somebody that you know who would love a free audiobook. We'll talk to you next time.